Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. It's Green and Growing here on 95.5 WSB. Hey, I'm your host, Ashley Frasca, bringing you experts in their fields, experts in the industry to really help learn us a thing or two. So I think I have found just that very person for you. I'm happy to introduce to all of you Dr. Daniel Potter, professor at the University of Kentucky with a focus on urban landscape entomology and just insect-plant relationships. So hey, Dr. Potter, good morning. Good morning. I wish you could be here in person to visit us in Atlanta, but welcome to Georgia. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure it's a lot uh farther along in the growing season in Georgia. I heard that the flowers are out and the bees are buzzing down there. That's right. A beautiful spring show. We're really enjoying the start of pollen season. Well, here we just have the crocuses popping up and the dandelions are beginning to open, but uh, there's certainly some promising signs. I love it. All right. Well, I was first introduced to you, Dr. Potter, uh, with a webinar that Auburn University has been really good about doing these Raising Trees webinars throughout COVID, the Alabama Cooperative Extension System. And you're gracious enough to do a webinar with that group. And I learned so much um, about bees and urban landscapes and suburban landscapes as well. Talk a little bit about the work that you and some of your graduate students are doing and the research you're doing on how insects impact plants in those settings. Well, my focus uh, for many years has been to work with the urban land care industry, the lawn care applicators, the professional arborists, and also homeowners interested in landscaping and garden centers and so on. We're very interested, of course, in urban pollinator conservation, both monarch butterflies and, uh, and bees, we work on basically two different fronts. One is to try to uh, integrate pest and pollinator management so that we can ensure that when we control pests like wood borers, emerald ash borer, grubs in your lawn, and things like that, we're doing it in a way that doesn't harm or imperil our beneficial pollinators. And so when we work with the industry, we're trying to develop reduced risk insecticides that they can use and also best management practices so they can control the pests without harming the pollinators. The other uh, area that we work in is to try to design landscapes that are going to be more friendly to uh, the conservation of pollinators. And in particular, we've been focusing on woody plants for bees. Uh, There's been a lot of work on which types of garden flowers and such are more or less attractive to bees, but there had been very little work on the trees and shrubs. And that's where our focus was for about four years. Would you call this a movement to to really bring home and bring awareness to this idea of 
conservation when it pertains to pollinators? Or is this something that's always really been at the forefront, but consumers are just now getting wind of it? I think it's certainly a movement. Uh, there's there's a, an organization that has uh, started a program called the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge, hmm. and they met their goal of a million pollinator gardens that were registered in just about three years. Uh, of course, most of your readers have probably heard about the Monarch Way Station program, and there are just um, hundreds of thousands, I think well more than a million registered uh, Monarch Way Stations in the United States now. I don't recall the exact number. Um, I think the public is increasingly aware pollinators are struggling a little bit, both uh, our domesticated honeybees and also our native bees and some of our iconic native butterflies are also in serious decline, and the public wants to help. Of course, there's also a lot of interest in landscaping and gardening, and particularly with, uh, with the COVID lockdown, I think a lot of more people are investing in their own landscapes and in enjoying their, their own backyards. And so I don't believe that the green industry has really suffered that much because, uh, again, people are buying a lot of plants and flowers and landscaping. And we found that to be the case as well. You know, I had just started this show maybe two months before the pandemic hit. And yeah, the nurseries I was in touch with and some other folks in the industry were saying there was a huge run on, you know, folks wanting to be self-sufficient with their vegetable gardens and things like that. But I'm glad you mentioned the million pollinator garden movement. Um, that's that's just a fascinating kind of grassroots thing that began at millionpollinatorgardens.org. But pollinators, people may not realize, are responsible for, what, about one out of every three bites of food we take every day. Yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, urban gardening is increasingly important for food security. Uh, a lot of people um, are getting fresh fruits and vegetables and things from their backyard gardens and orchards. Uh, I think also the public's increasingly aware of some of the problems that pollinators have had. The, the, the problem of colony collapse of honeybees really hit the news about six or seven years ago. Uh, and uh, honeybees, of course, are very important uh, pollinators for agriculture. But also um, things like habitat loss, inadvertent pesticide exposure, and a number of other stress factors are affecting pollinators. Monarch butterflies are, uh, of course, an iconic native beloved butterfly, mm -hmm. and they're also dramatically declining. In fact, there's a petition out there right now to put them on the endangered species list. Wow. And they're suffering from loss of habitat in the Mexican highlands where they overwinter, where there's been some logging. Uh, they're also suffering from loss of milkweed throughout the North American flyways and breeding grounds. The milkweed has uh, been lost. I think they estimate about 2 billion stems have to be replaced wow. of milkweed to, to replace all of that essential food plant that's been lost to urbanization and also to um, intensive farming, including the use of uh, herbicides that have taken out a lot of our milkweed. So monarch butterflies, as you mentioned, and the colony collapse, which, yes, made the news maybe 2013, 2014, as far as honeybees are concerned. Now, is it fair, Dr. Potter, to say we can relate some of that colony collapse, yes, to, to change an environment, like you said, but neonicotinoids is something that folks have heard of, maybe neonics. Um, how do those work as pesticides? How does that impact bees? The neonics, of course, have been very much in the news, these neonicotinoid insecticides. They play important roles in urban land care in the management of pests like emerald ash borer. Uh, we've used them for uh, quite almost 20 years now. 
uh, for managing, in fact, from 1993 on, in fact, uh, managing white grubs and lawns and things like that. But they do have some activity on, on bees as well. Uh, they're translocated into the pollen and nectar. And so I think we're seeing some transitioning away from those chemicals. The public cares a lot about the pesticides, but in fact, pollinators face almost a perfect storm of interacting factors. Uh, exotic bee diseases, the mm. uh, honeybees suffer from um, sort of zombie mites that feed on their on their fatty tissues, oh. they're called varroa mites. They're, they're in, invasive species that really put a lot of stress on honeybee colonies. Climate change, habitat loss, a, a variety of factors are interacting. Um, the pesticides are part of the picture, but by no means are they the whole picture. So I don't recall what your second question was because I went on for a while there. <laughs> but uh, it's not just pesticides. There's a lot of things. And I think the thing that the average homeowner can do to help the bees is to provide them with more and better food. Uh, that can certainly be uh, a, big, a big benefit to the bees to provide additional habitat and sources of pollen and nectar. And then, of course, to cut back on the overuse of insecticides. Uh, as an entomologist, I realize that insecticides are, are important. I mean, certainly if we have bed bugs in our beds or we have termites in our walls, we're going to have to use some sort of an insecticide. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times I think we could back off a little bit on some of our outdoor insecticide use and, and still have quality landscapes. Well, and it's kind of a catch-22 with some of these neonics. I mean, I'm, I'm under the assumption they're more of a systemic you know, pesticide that is soaked up through the roots, goes up through the, the plant. But some are, you know, like you said, they're, they're effective at combating emerald ash borer, which is such a problem, white grubs, yet they, they may be harmful to bees. So um, in, in the research that you all and your team and your grad students have done, what are some of maybe the best management practices that someone like me in my own backyard, in my own landscape could do to maybe treat the pests that I want to without negative side effects? Well, if we start with lawn care, uh, I think cultivating a healthy lawn helps a lot, and that would be to fertilize at the appropriate times of year that would be recommended by the, the experts in Georgia. Uh, that would be raising your cutting height so you don't put a lot of stress on the turf, and just you know planting the right types of grasses that would be adapted to wherever one happens to live in Georgia. So you start with a healthy lawn, that's going to be a lot more insect-resistant. Um, at least in my opinion, um, we should be moving away from preventive insecticide usage because mm -hmm. it's really only a fraction of lawns that are going to have a, uh, a serious insect problem. And, and if one does it oneself or if one hires someone to take care of the lawn, it's good to be knowledgeable so that you're not just applying the insecticides as an insurance when it's not really needed. Now, from the professional standpoint, um, we recommend that if uh, they do need to be treating lawns for mole crickets or white grubs or some other pest, that they be very careful not to spray flowering weeds. We, we know that dandelions and white clover, for example, violets, are very bee attractive. And if we overspray those when we're trying to treat for the pests, we can contaminate those flowers, and that can be a real bee hazard. So we certainly recommend that if they have to treat for pests, that they mow off those flowers before or immediately after. It would be better to mow them before. Um, we also have been working hard to identify alternative insecticides uh, 
that are not going to be harmful to bees. And one of the ones that we have identified as an alternative to neonicotinoids is now on the market. The commercial name for the product is Acelaprin, and it has a different mode of action than neonicotinoids or the old-fashioned insecticides that we used a generation ago. And it turns out that bees um, are not very uh, susceptible to that insecticide at all. It's much more active on beetles and caterpillars and some of the other pests. But um, we have determined that that acelaprin, it's actually the new active ingredient in Scott's Grub-X. And this is uh, much less toxic to bees than some of the alternatives. And so we're trying to nudge the industry away from the more hazardous pesticides from the standpoint of bees. And, and in fact, the acelaprin is also less toxic to benefit other beneficial insects as well. The predators, the parasitic wasps that help to maintain a healthy balance in a lawn, and even earthworms. It's a, very much a step in the right direction. It's also, a, the EPA regards it as green chemistry. Its uh, toxicity to humans is very low as well. Amazing, the awareness and the science in this industry that can just keep up with the times and really, you know, shift focus when seven years ago we were kind of in a a whole different place. Well, Dr. Daniel Potter from the University of Kentucky, if you can hang on really quickly, we're going to take a break and check traffic and weather. We'll be back because I have one more burning question to ask. Can you hang around? (laughs) Thanks. All right. You're listening to Green and Growing on WS. I'm Channel 2 Action News meteorologist Brad Nitz. Isolated shower storm today, rain chance at 30%, high of 80. Better chance of storms tomorrow, and we'll tap it at 75. All right, the weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. Back here on Green and Growing. Hey, Ashley Frasca joined by Dr. Daniel Potter, professor at the University of Kentucky, just kind of refreshing you. Focus on urban landscape entomology and insect plant relations. And I'm going to share a slide from one of Dr. Potter's presentations, which I loved this slide. And with your permission, Dr. Potter, how to build a bee-friendly landscape. And you've got awesome tree suggestions on this. And yes, for Kentucky, but this is also good for the Georgia audience, no? Yes, I think it would be. Our message to homeowners is to plant a diversity of flowering plants that provide pollen and nectar and to try to incorporate a mix of plants that bloom from very early in the growing season until late in the growing season. We want to provide overlapping food sources of pollen and nectar. You'll probably notice on my slide that there are some non-native plants as well as native. And we have (laughs) studied uh, the pollen and nectar quality of native and non-native plants and also quantified bee attraction to these plants. And I understand the arguments for planting an all-native plant landscape, but there are a lot of non-native plants that the pollinators like as well. So some of our non-invasive non-native plants, if they're incorporated into urban landscapes, can actually provide pollen and nectar early in the year before the native plants kick in and also late in the growing season when most of our native plants are done. But built landscapes in downtown Atlanta or an average suburban area, uh, a mix of of mainly natives and some non-natives is is actually pretty good for bees. And what about those who are looking to attract caterpillars, you know, ultimately becoming butterflies, having that in their landscape? What, What recommendations would you have there? Well, certainly our native plants do support more native caterpillars uh, because those caterpillars are adapted to using those plants. And so if you're interested primarily in feeding birds on on caterpillar food, which is important, uh, we certainly do recommend that you emphasize natives. 
but again, my point is that including a few non-invasive, non-native trees and shrubs in a landscape uh, can provide a lot of quality bee food in, say, March and April or on into August, September, and October uh, and help fill in those seasonal gaps. And that's why we have some non-invasive, non-natives on the list. You do have maybe two or three websites that you did want to share with the listeners where they can go learn more. There are some great websites about building a pollinator-friendly landscape. I would suggest that people check out the Pollinator Partnership website with a wealth of information there. The website of the Xerces Society, and that's X-E-R-C-E-S, Xerces. And then also a, a website called the Grow Plant Health Exchange, Grow Plant Health Exchange. And there you'll find several podcasts and webcasts that we've created on how to build a better monarch butterfly garden and also how to uh, build a bee-friendly landscape using woody plants, trees, and shrubs. Wonderful. Well, I'll list all of those on the Green and Growing WSB Facebook page for those of you that want to click through and really learn a lot more. Best of luck to you and your team, Dr. Potter. And like I said, welcome to Atlanta. Thanks so much for bringing all that knowledge a little further south. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I've I've enjoyed uh, our chat this morning, and I wish everybody to have a, a great spring. Up next, it's you and your calls, your garden questions, 404-872-0750. It's Ashley Frasca on WSB. Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. I'm always amazed when we get to the halfway point of the show at 7.30 how quickly the first hour and a half has gone by. So welcome back to Green and Growing here until 9 o'clock with you. And then uh, Dave Baker, I think he's going to uh, waddle in here a little before 9 o'clock. He's going to miss... The first part of the Conyers Cherry Blossom Festival out there in Rockdale County. So maybe when he gets off at noon, he can go back home and enjoy that. That's going to be fun at the Georgia International Horse Park today. I hope you've got some nice plans outside. You may dodge a couple of showers, but otherwise should be a decent day. Wear sunscreen. It's going to get up close to 80 degrees, a warm day. So um, I have promised your calls, and I am ready to start taking them. 404 872 We learn a lot from each other. I learn a lot from you guys. I feel like... Over the past year, I mean, my my brain has gotten much, much larger just in part really to everything that you all share. And gardeners are so great about that, sharing knowledge and experiences and, you know, what works, what doesn't. So we can always continue to do that here. I want this show to be an avenue for that very thing to help each other out. So up first, over to Cobb County, Jack in Marietta. Hey, good morning, Jack. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm great. What are you looking to do this weekend? Well, I have an area in the back of the yard that's not very well used, and it has taken over like broadleaf and other, you know, weeds. Not very high, but they're in Georgia clay. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to kill those weeds and then add some soil and then till it up and put fescue out there. Cause I'm... Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, so it's somewhat shady? Well, Technically, well, now it's in spring and summertime. It'll have many good hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Very fescue, much. I think it'll do pretty fine there. Um, to, to kind of start with a clean palette and a clean slate, 
uh, to get rid of all of those weeds. You know, tilling is going to disrupt a lot of the weed seeds that are there in the soil, the first few inches of the soil, and they haven't germinated yet. So what you see now, I would go ahead and use maybe like just a non-selective herbicide, like a Roundup or something, um, to you know get get to a good start, eradicate what's there, but then wait like two weeks at least before you do fescue seed, and that's going to put you in mid-April. That's not too late. Yeah, that's what I was waiting for. Really, is if I could go ahead and kill the the weeds now, and that's what I was asking. Really, the period is two weeks. And then till it up, add dirt, and then plant? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So go ahead and use that glyphosate. And now keep in mind, you know, if you do it on a breezy day, though, you always have to be so careful with something that's non-selective because it could carry through the air and, you know, really be harmful to things nearby that you may not want to hurt. Um, but, yeah, that's going to be the best start for you to get the soil right. I love that you're going to bring in new soil and all of that and then till, till up everything really well, probably to a depth of, I'd say four to six inches, just because, like I said, you're disrupting the weed seeds that are down there, you know, so till down. Um, and, yeah, seeding for new fescue is going to be easy peasy. Well, I, you know, and I also looked at doing sort of like seed. I also looked at pallet of wool fescue, you know, too, also to start it back there. Yeah. Um, do you have a preference or is it just, I know cost-wise, yeah, um, sod sod does get expensive, but as long as come mid-April, you know, if temperatures are sticking around pretty high, you know, 70 and above, that's just really going to stay on you to keep it watered very, very well for through those summer months and make sure it doesn't dry out and it establishes really well. It really needs all that water and all that moisture to, you know, depth in the, the roots and things like that. So um, if you can stay on top of that, it's going to be a good investment, sure. Yeah, and I found out soil is pretty expensive, too. (laughs) It is, isn't it? I mean, just for dirt. I'm like, okay, it's like paying for bottled water, you know? Exactly. I know you think it's in in abundance around here, but it it, it does get pretty costly. Now, you don't have to introduce new soil, but it wouldn't be a bad idea. If you've got a little bit of the money to spend, I might. Yeah. Well, what's the makeup of how do these weeds grow in the hard Georgia clay? It's incredible how tough seeds are. I mean, I I put in some seed yesterday, tomato seed and bell pepper seed. And I mean, they're tiny, 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 like almost got lost under my fingernail as I was trying to put them into the soil. But they are super tough. I don't know the, the science behind that. I mean, really, water is the main thing. Moisture is the main thing that clicks them into action. So as long as that water has a way to penetrate the clay and it meets that seed, that seed's ready to go. It's activated. But yeah, the Georgia... Uh, the the Georgia red clay is just, it's not our friend. And one quick follow-up. Okay. How do you get rid of moss? I've never had moss in my front yard, and moss has developed in the front yard. I know it's a wet winter, but um, I know there's a product out there you could, it turns it black, but it never kills it. You just got to rake it through. Yeah, there's, I think the product is Moss X or something like that. But, I mean, really, the moss, it, it's, It's got all of those conditions that are just right to grow. It likes the dense clay, like we talked about, that dense, hard soil. It likes where it stays wet, and it likes the shade. So as long as you have all three of those things present, it's going to be very hard to combat it once it's begun. 
Um, so you can scrape it away, but that's not to say it's not going to come back. So you kind of either learn to live with it or do what you can to maybe open up that area a little bit if you're limbing up some trees or something like that, that it can get a little more sun. The moss wouldn't thrive as much. Yeah, that's what I'm doing now is cutting back limbs where now we're going to get more exposure uh, during the daytime with the sun from east to west. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we look up now, and of course the tree profile isn't what it's going to be, you know, in the next month or two. So it's like, oh, that area is going to be pretty sunny. Look at it. Well, in two months when everything's leafed out, you know, that really changes your perspective on things. But I think you're you're on the right path, you know, and as long as you can establish grass in the areas that you want it, like you're asking about the fescue, this, the more you strengthen that lawn, it really is the number one defense to unwanted things like weeds, like moss, things like that. So having a healthy fescue lawn, you know, properly fertilized, it's kept watered, all that kind of stuff, the right mowing height and things like that, that's going to be just the, the cheapest and easiest way to keep everything that you don't want out. Yeah, because it does add up, I tell you that. Oh, boy. Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's so funny. You're like, yeah, soil. Dirt's expensive. <laughs> it is. Oh, well, Jack, good luck. And hey, so when you uh, when you think about it, I don't know if you're new to fescue. You may have it in other parts of the, the lawn, but um, hop on Walter's site. I mean, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. He's got great stuff. WalterReeves.com. And at the search bar up at the top, do lawn care calendar. And I've got that uh, handy dandy little calendar from he and the University of Georgia right in front of me. So you've got literally January to December what months to do what in regards to fescue so you can stay on top of fertilizing at the right time, pre-emergence, you know, herbicides at the right time and all of that kind of thing. You'll probably find that pretty helpful. So search lawn care calendar and everybody can do that. And then Walter's got the list of the grass you're looking to do, even if it's like St. Augustine or Zoysia or something like that. He's got all of the common, you know, lawns for here in the Southeast and what to be doing. So Jack, good luck. You've got a project ahead of you. I'm really glad you called. 404-872-0750. Good morning to Hillary calling from Grant Park. Good morning, Ashley. It's hey. nice to talk to you. You too. I'm, I'm really glad you called. What's going on? Well, I've been watching some little holes in my front yard. I have a very small in-town front yard lot, and it's very well-established zoysia. And now I have hundreds of little holes that don't, like they look like inch holes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a little dirt mounded up around the hole, but then it's kind of making the zoysia spongy. So I went online and uh, mole crickets came up. Mm-hmm. So I went out last night and I did the mole cricket test of two <laughs> ounces of soapy water in a two foot area and wait for the mole crickets to come up and nothing happened. So now I have lots of little holes and I don't know what's causing it. So... This, this is kind of a call we get every spring, and, and Walter always got repeatedly, because based on the size of the hole, yeah, it's just a guess, unless you see what's coming in and out of there, what's causing it. So you're pretty sure about an inch in diameter, a little bit bigger than a quarter? Yes, yes, yes. And there's lots of them. I mean, they're, it, it's pretty much covered, and it kind of, the zoysia's kind of flopped over it, and I'm kind of lifting the zoysia up, and it's, you know, it has quite a bit of thatch in it, but it just seems like it's, it's lifting, it's separating from the soil. My guess, I've got moles, and moles, the hole is a little bit bigger. The hole is maybe two to three inches in diameter, and it does, it makes everything spongy. As I go to step on mm-hmm. the lawn, it almost sinks beneath my mm-hmm. feet because of the tunneling. But the fact that you're saying there's a little bit of dirt next to it, um, I'm almost wondering if it's a vole, you know, which is like a tiny, tiny, tiny little mouse, little gray guy. 
um, voles, their holes are about one inch in diameter. Um, would, they, would it be like like close together? In other words, like 25 holes, like all close together? Could be, yeah. If he's if he's staying contained in the same area or he's got three or four little buddies that are all working in the same area. Um, in the past, I have found vole holes in beds, not so much my lawn, but in beds like near hostas and areas that stay a little shadier. Mm-hmm. But is this just right out in the middle of the lawn? Oh yeah, I mean it's and it's on both sides of the sidewalk going up to the house. And it, it at first I thought it was squirrels digging, you know, acorns or whatever. But this is all over. It almost it's just a bunch of little holes. And my sister in law said, "Oh, could it be the locusts coming out?" I'm like, I don't know. Well, you know, um, the um, Walter and I had a conversation earlier in the show about the cicadas, which are going to emerge, you know, after their 17 year deal, whatever. And we're not going to be as affected as the the states north of us, but there is a cicada killer wasp, and they burrow in the ground, and they kind of keep around. And I almost think it's a little too early for those, but I wouldn't rule it out because that's about the same size hole, um, the cicada okay. killer wasp. And you're not going to really see that yet. Um, they're not going to be you know, out flying around yet, but that could be a possibility too. So um, I found a good... So what should I do? I know. Then? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> I found a good website. I don't want to lose my grass. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to lose my grass. Yeah. The Because uh, eventually the cicada killer wasps, if I'm not mistaken, once the cicadas come out in May, then those wasps are going to be up out of the ground as well. But then that means they could lie dormant and do a lot more damage to your lawn between now and, and May, if that is in mm-hmm. fact the case. Um, I did find a website for the Center of Wildlife Damage Management, and they've got all the information about the holes. But then, yeah, they don't say what to do. Oh, no. Well, yeah, first we need to we need to diagnose it properly. It, and it may be a vole problem. And if it's voles, that's that's a little easier to combat than the cicada killer wasp. Will you send me a picture of it, Hillary? Because I don't want to send you on a, sure. uh, you know, down the rabbit hole and on a wild goose chase yeah. treating the wrong thing. I can just to your website. You can do it, or sure. if I put you on hold, you can email it to me. I'll give have to mark. Okay. Yeah, give you my email address, and I'll even put it on the Facebook page and just be like, you know, if anybody maybe, else. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe somebody else is having a similar. Yeah, but, and it's very mature, and you know, this grass has been down for probably twenty five years. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a real rich zoysia. Okay. Uh, patch. So I um, okay. And I make will sure do that. make sure to take a good picture with what you're describing. Like if there is a little bit of dirt kick off kicked off to the side, or if you can take a picture of the area that's raised just a little bit or something to give us kind of the full picture. Um, and I'll, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll solicit okay, some help from perfect. others, and I'll keep doing some research because I've got this great list that gives you, you know, based on the size of the hole, what it could be. But then. No, no help in what to do next. Right. Well, and, and, you know, after listening to your previous segment, you know, I don't want to do any, I don't want to put down chemical if it's not the right thing to do. And I don't exactly. want to harm any other, you know, species trying to figure out what this is. So yeah, I want to be responsible about my treatment. Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, there's bees burrowing and chipmunks that are running around down there. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's, that's why I just love when we put our heads together and really think this through because you don't want to, I mean, it's not even about spending the money, but just all willy nilly going ahead, just spraying something, thinking that that's going to be the, the be all end all fix to the problem. So thank you for that, Hillary. Yeah. DeMarco will give you my email address and then follow me on green and growing WSB on Facebook. And then we'll see as people's answers come in, I'll post that by the end of today. Um, and we'll see as people may give us some feedback as to what you've got going on. We want to save the zoysia, save the zoysia lawn. Hillary, thanks for calling. We're going to take a break, check traffic and weather, and we'll be back to talk to Cheryl in Norcross. Knockout roses, is, knockout roses have a virus. 
I know what it is, and I don't have good news. So we'll be back on WSP. Starting to heat up out there, about 66 degrees and headed to a high around 80, but mostly cloudy today. Scattered showers, mainly the northern half of metro Atlanta. Tomorrow, you're almost guaranteed rain, 70% chance for scattered thunderstorms. Weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing and Channel 2 Action News meteorologist Brad Nitz, of course, has more coming up. Green, Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. All right, you love the camellia bushes that are blooming right now. They have been gorgeous. They're huge. They're beautiful. But once those blooms fall to the ground, you may want to start picking them up just for good sanitation practices. If you'll prevent camellia petal blight, you'll certainly be happy getting ahead of that. When you look at the bottom of the blossom, right where all the base of the petals come together, if there's a white ring, you've got it. And petal blight, just like it sounds, some there's going to be some browning around the petals, and you've wondered kind of what was causing that. So good sanitation practice and removing weeds in the ground covers to get diseased flowers, which have already fallen, just kind of raking some of that back. Replace mulch, you know, with a new inch or two um, layer of mulch just to interfere with spore release through the following season. So good sanitation practices on the camellias now. Going to save them from petal blight next season as well. Number two, for Scythia, quince, and winter honeysuckle can be pruned to a smaller size after they're finished flowering. Some of that is starting to come to a close. And number three, it's not too late for a spring seeding of fescue. We were just talking with Jack about that. Warm weather's on the way, so the seeds will sprout quickly. And if you haven't done a pre-emergent, you're fine to seed for fescue. And if you still want to do a pre-emergent to prevent some weeds, wait till like late April. And I know you're thinking, well, that's kind of late because you started you know, telling us to do it around the 1st of March. So a late pre-emergent, again, not going to treat all weeds, but some will definitely be prevented. You just have to give that time, that fescue time, the seeds to uh, sprout. And then that way the pre-emergence herbicide is not going to impact them at all. So start thinking about those, you know, cool season grasses and strengthening up that fescue. All right, Cheryl and Norcross going to be up first in the 8 o'clock hour asking about rose rosette and what to do. With some of the new growth on your knockout roses, you may be starting to notice they look a little funny. So we'll help her, and I hope to help you. 404-872-0750. Call Green and Growing right now on WSB. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.